0: Hey everyone, welcome back. It's Thursday again and Twitter's legal team is going all Sharia law. The border argument has me thinking about end time prophecy. We're going to look at Jewish, Christian and Islamic prophecies about end times. And British Columbia wants to get rid of Christmas trees. So that means it's a history lesson time. I'm Lurie Siemens and here's the history behind this week's news stories. with a few announcements this is actually gonna be the last um, like new broadcast of the year I'm going to take a couple of weeks break uh, I am first a wife and a mom and I've actually done no Christmas baking yet none which is absolutely crazy so I have so much to do next week and then we have Christmas break and my kids will be home so I'm gonna be hanging out with them um it actually takes a lot of time to do the research for the history episode for each week but there will still be a podcast. I'm going to take some clips from different episodes of the year and put them together to make an episode. So next week is going to be everything UN. Also, even though I don't have a podcast, I do still have videos which I may add to the podcast I haven't decided yet. I have a Bible study which is a daily Bible study and we're going through the book of Daniel. Um in January, we're going to be going through the book of Revelation, but you can't understand Revelation unless you have a really good, firm grasp on the book of Daniel. So if you want to understand those two books of the Bible, go to lauraleesiemens.com and click on videos. So let's start with our political correct rules for this week. When I first started this segment, I wondered if there would be something new every week, but I should not have worried because yes, every week. New rules are added. So, again, two new rules this week. One, another movie, or in this case, a play, has to be edited. The Sound of Music. Now, this is one of my favorite movies. And my daughters were in this play two years ago. One was a nun, and the other was in the choir. And if you're trying really hard to think, what could possibly be wrong with this play? Well, as it turns out, there are Nazis in the play. And if you're thinking, wait, but the Nazis are bad... And it's a historical play, and those were real people who really did escape the Nazis. That doesn't matter. Nazis have to be edited out. You're not sure how? It doesn't matter. Are you thinking that ruins the end of the story? Yes, yes, it does. And are you thinking that actually takes away from the central message of the play? Yes, you're right, it does. But it's Nazis, so they have to go. Now, with all these new rules, you might be wondering, how do I keep up? Well, the next rule shows that you can't keep up because it turns out the new rules are retroactive. So, if the rules changed and 10 years ago you were going with the current rules of the day, nope, doesn't matter, you're still out of the club. An example for that this week is a guy named Kyle Murray. And he is a black athlete who, as it turns out, is also an insane athlete. It could have something to do with his genetics because his dad is a quarterback for or was a quarterback for Texas in the 80s. And his uncle Calvin played professional baseball for the Giants, the Rangers and the Cubs. And Kyler is this amazing football and baseball player. And basically he can choose what sport he wants to play professionally. So this week, Kyler won the Heisman Trophy. Pretty awesome. But the PC police were waiting. They were on his Twitter and went back to when Kyler was 14 years old and apparently he said something that was not politically correct and went against gay people when he was 14. Apparently, he used some kind of a term when talking to one of his friends. So on the day when Kyler should have been celebrating this great achievement, he was instead saying sorry for something he tweeted when he was 14. And by the way, Saying sorry isn't good enough because there is no grace in this game of PC rules. If you've ever broken a rule at any point in your life, you are forever out of the club. So, important for all of us to make sure we are keeping up with these rules and being good citizens. Now, I know I make fun of these new PC rules, but something else actually happened this week that I cannot even be silly with. A Minnesota State University professor named Eric Spangle said that the Christmas story is a rape story. That's right. According to Eric, God raped Mary because she did not give consent. So when people pointed out she actually did give consent, and you can read that in Luke chapter 1, verse 38, where she says, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said, which is her giving consent. Then the Minnesota State University professor said it doesn't matter. If she verbally gave consent, she was a teen and God was an all-powerful deity, so there was a power difference, so it's still rape. And people pointed out calling her a teen is a little bit misleading since she was engaged at the time. He said it didn't matter, it's still rape. And of course, we know as Christians that Mary being impregnated with Jesus was not God coming down to earth and having sex with Mary that did not happen right the Holy Spirit came to Mary and she was with child without having sex she was a virgin so there was no rape in the Christmas story and it's not funny and I can't make a joke about this this is how far our Western society has fallen God didn't rape human beings God saved humans Jesus is God, and he came to earth to live as one of us, to feel our pain, to feel our joy, to feel our disappointments, to feel our loneliness. And then he died in a cruel, brutal death. And in that death, he took the punishment for all of our sins that we have done, all the sins you have done, and all the sins I have done. And then he conquered death and rose again so we can have hope of eternity in heaven. He died for the sins of Eric Spankley. The PC police became actually PC police for some prominent conservatives this week. Twitter's legal team actually sent out legal letters to three conservatives, letting them know they had broken Sharia law. And one of the cases, it was a tweet from five years ago. So like I said, it's retroactive. One was Imam Tuhaidi, and I did not pronounce that right. He's also known as the Imam of Peace. And um, another woman named Ensaf. She is a Canadian whose husband is being held in Saudi Arabia for blasphemy. So they were both contacted and then the next day Anthony Fury was also contacted and he is a journalist here in Toronto or in Ottawa. So here is what the legal department at Twitter sent them. I'm going to read the letter. Hello, we are writing to inform you that Twitter has received official correspondence regarding your Twitter account and then it names the account The correspondence claims that the following content is a violation of Pakistani law, and then it has links to the tweets that they that they sent out. Twitter has not taken action on the record on the reported content at this time. That's kind of scary to me. We are only writing to inform you that content posted to your account has been mentioned in a complaint. This notice is not legal advice. You may wish to consult legal counsel. About this matter if you believe we have contacted you in error please let us know by replying to this email for more general information of legal requests please refer to the following help center so in the case of Anthony Fury it was a tweet from um, way back remember when the, when the newspaper was shot up by Islamists who were angry because they had drawn a cartoon of Mohammed he actually tweeted a picture of the cartoon in question um, and seeing as how he was a journalist and it was this huge news story, that's actually really reasonable. In the case of Imam of Peace, he was, he's literally a Muslim who is criticizing extremists of his own religion. And in the case of Insaf, she is telling the story of her husband, who has been whipped many times, is being held in prison, and is a journalist. This should terrify every single person who loves freedom, every single one of us. If Twitter is going down this route, it's really disturbing. Right now it's Pakistan, but what if it becomes Canada? This year we have Motion 103, which is a non-binding agreement that the government wants to crack down on Islamophobia, and which is, of course, the Western term for Sharia law. I love how they keep calling it non-binding as a way to make people think it's no big deal. But once it is a law, we are clearly moving in that direction. Will Twitter turn us into the police if we question Islam, even extremists? In the three cases that I mentioned, they were talking about terrorists or governments that were torturing their journalists. These are things that we not only should be allowed to criticize, we should be morally obligated to criticize. If you're thinking Canada would never allow Sharia law into our country, well maybe not the Canada the way we have it now. But once our borders are open and Sharia loving people pour into our country and all get the right to vote and run for government. That will change very quickly. And if you're a parent and you want your children to have the same opportunities you have, you need to be concerned. The last two weeks I've talked about the UN Migration Compact and the connection I see with Agenda 21 and Agenda 2030. And this week, Canada signed it. We were told not to worry about it. It's it's a non-binding and the UN will still, of course, recognize the sovereignty of each country's borders. But at the conference and as the conference came to an end, a man named Louis got up and he was the secretary general of the conference and he gave a speech. And he said, borders are just lines drawn on a piece of paper. What? Borders are just lines drawn on a piece of paper? That's it? That's all they are? And he also said, this compact will help reduce the profound inequity inequity of the lottery of birth. Let me read that again. This compact will help reduce the profound inequity of the lottery of birth. That last sentence is something I talked about two weeks ago. And I've heard other Christians say the same thing. We won a lottery by being born in the West. No, we're born in the West because that's where our parents had sex. And that's how people are born. And the West is great because it was built on Judeo-Christian values. And those values were fought for by our ancestors and are currently being fought for by our military today. And by the way, that speech does not scream, we will respect your sovereignty to control your borders. What about the whole non-binding thing? Well, the countries, including Canada, have to report back in four years to tell the UN how they've implemented the changes. So that sounds pretty binding to me well what countries have signed well as of today when i checked the un had still not released the names of the countries that had signed which is pretty sketchy because there's a bunch of countries where the leaders told their country they would not sign but they did send representatives and some people believe that they actually did sign even though their citizens um were told that they wouldn't sign so the un has not released the list of countries Um, And they don't want to know whether their government has signed or not. So think about these stories. Twitter's legal paper telling reporters and activists that they've broken Sharia law. Motion 103 cracking down on Islamophobia. The UN compact saying our borders are just lines on a piece of paper. And those of us who have always grown up in freedom, we don't understand why we actually need to be afraid right now. And I'm going to read to you a message that I got from a friend of mine. Our kids go to the same school together. So I'm reading um, his words right now. Being from a Hungarian background, I've heard the stories of the oppression people endured in Hungary over the darkest years from 1946 until the 70s and finally ending in 1989. I realized the importance of free speech. I have spent a great amount of time in Hungary over the years. I'm the son of a Hungarian immigrant who fled Hungary in the 1956 revolution and where refugees were for about a year till they settled in Cardiff. Then a few years later moved to Toronto and I was born in Toronto. In the years from 1988 and on I personally met many people who have had family and friends disappear in the middle of the night when the secret police came knocking during the dark years in Hungary. Many of these people were never seen or heard from again, just for speaking out against the communist government. Many people had neighbours that were spies so you couldn't say anything. It was easy to get rid of a neighbour you didn't like. My grandfather was a prosperous farmer and the government confiscated his farm and put him into a factory to work. All media was controlled by the government. There was very little freedom of religion and next to no freedom of assembly. Secret police would always be present even in church services. They would plant spies amongst the people in their church and even at their work. You could never know who you can trust. In 1988 I remember having to report to the police stations every time I moved to a different town. This was common in all the former Soviet bloc countries. Hungary was probably one of the most free countries of all of them, if you can even call that free. In Canada we have never been enslaved and as a result we let our guard down. We almost fully trust our government and our protests, when we do protest, are poorly organized and ineffective in most cases. We react when it's too late. For example, the Ontario elementary school curriculum from just a couple years ago. We need to realize how important free speech is, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, freedom of press, and etc. There are some of the main pillars of free Canadian society. These freedoms are suddenly threatened today in Canada and in many Western countries. As Canadians, we take it for granted and assume it will always be there. As free Canadians we need to start paying attention to the system and start questioning the changes that are being very quietly made. Some of these changes aren't so quiet but people are just too lazy to investigate, like the UN Compact on Migration. In a couple of years the entire country will wake up to what this was and by then it will be too late. At times I've called and emailed my local MP. This is something everyone can do when they feel the government is out of line. Write all of our MPs and even our Prime Minister's office in Ottawa and voice our concerns. We need to contact newspapers and other media and speak up. Each person could educate themselves and share what is learned with others. All Canadians should embrace who we are today, but also who we were as a nation 150 years ago. Let's all return to the principles our nation was founded on. Most importantly, we need to pray and we need to pray for our nation. And that was the letter that he sent. Maybe you're thinking, wait, your friend's family was a refugee and look how great that worked out for them. Shouldn't we want that for others? Yes, we should. And I'm not against refugees coming to Canada. And I've actually said that over and over. But refugees and migrants are not the same thing. Think about it this way. You're at home eating supper. Someone's knocking at your door and it sounds frantic. You run to the door and there's a young teenage girl. She's crying and she says someone attacked her and tried to rape her. She ran away, and he's chasing her. You would grab that girl, pull her into your house, call the police, and get help. But what if while you're still waiting for the police, you hear a knock at the door again. You go to the door, and there's a strange man. He says, hey, just thought I would pop in and say hello. No reason. Just want to see what's in your house. If you said, sure, man, I don't know, who, by the way, looks very similar to the description of the person who just attacked this girl. Come on in. Everyone's welcome here. Would you still be acting in a kind and caring way to the young teen girl, or would you possibly be letting her attack her into your house? And this is assuming he knocks. What if he just breaks down the door and barges in or climbs in through a window, which is what is happening at Roxham Road as they enter through a non-port of entry. Yes, I want to bring people here to Canada who love freedom, who have the same values as Canadians, people like Asia Bibi. But I don't want to bring the people who think Asia Bibi should be killed for drinking from a cup that was for Muslims. I don't want those people. This world is a dark place. We have um, uh, Boko Haram, ISIS, Al-Qaeda. These are all people who believe in slavery. They rape young girls and little boys dressed up like girls on a regular basis. They kill anyone who's not a radical Islamist. They behead people. They kill whole families, including children. They throw people off roofs. They bury them alive up to their waist. And then since they can't move because their arms are tied behind their backs and they're buried up to their chest, they throw stones at them until they die. They crucify Christians as young as 12. They've sawed in half a group of 15-year-old boys. They burn people alive. They're evil, evil, evil to an extent that we cannot even comprehend. What I want in Canada is the ones fleeing this. What I do not want is the ones doing this or even the ones who think it's okay. And the number who think it's okay is very large, frighteningly large. About six years ago, I sat with a group of people spending the day learning about Islam. I was learning about it so I could be a witness to a large group of Muslims that had moved into the area where I lived. I believed at the time that as Christians, this was the way for us to witness to an unreached part of the world. I believed that we could not go to the Middle East so God had brought the Middle East to us. We could be a light to them and we could learn about Jesus Christ and they could learn about Jesus Christ and come to understand his saving power. I learned how to communicate with them in a way that would not be offensive. I learned how to make meals. I made meals and I brought them to the families. I started homework clubs for the children, soccer camps. I visited the homes and I met the families. And I met really nice, wonderful Muslim women. And their children were all so incredible. Well, there's this one kid who yelled in my face and called me an infidel and told me I was going to die. But his name was Hamas. And if you are named after a terrorist group, you're probably not being raised in, like, the greatest home. But there was also girls who would come to play soccer and they would take off their Muslim clothes to play and then put them back on after. And when they saw me taking pictures, they freaked out and made me delete them because if their brothers or uncles saw them not wearing their Muslim clothing, they would be in big trouble. And they were terrified. That's actually not cool. After years of this, I stopped and looked at what I was doing and I was not offending anyone and I was making food that followed Islamic practices. I was helping with schoolwork. I was giving them an opportunity to play sports. I was getting to know the parents. I was not, however, giving them Jesus. That's because they would leave for any parts that involved me telling the Bible story or talking about my faith. There was one example where a child really wanted to hear and did hear, but I can't talk about that situation because I don't wanna put that family at risk. Even though that family does live in Canada, Many churches are doing all the things I did, but what we're not doing is leading them to Christ, partly because we're not actually prepared to do that. What has happened over the years? Have we seen mass amounts of Muslims coming to Christ here in Canada? Maybe I'm missing something, but I've seen the opposite. I've seen Christians becoming more and more afraid to say anything against the religion of Islam. Christians give money to programs that will help Muslims, but they don't share the gospel with them. Muslims actually have a term for this. It's called the jizya. I'm not pronouncing that right, but it's a tax. They believe Christians must pay to Muslims. What I've learned is that Muslims are not surprised or necessarily happy that Christians are giving them money. They expect it. The Quran tells them that Allah will make the Christians pay this tax. What I've discovered is this. What we need to do, yes, show love and respect. Be kind, yes. But we also need to be brave. Brave enough to say the religion of Islam is not a religion of peace. It's a horrible religion that treats women like garbage and is raging terror over the planet. Not only that, but the followers of Islam will not have the peace with God that Jesus came to bring. It is love to bring them a meal and help them with homework and play soccer, but it's not love to do that and then not give them the opportunity to know the true peace of God. Is it love when we're afraid to share that peace because they might get angry with us? Do we even know how to share that love? Do you even know how to share that love? If a Muslim asked you to explain your faith to them, could you? Right now, if they asked you that, what would you say? David Platt said in one of his messages, Children in Afghanistan right now are attending Muslim schools where by the time they're 13 or 14 years old, they will have memorized the entire Quran what's more many of these children speak different languages they came to those schools and they memorize it in arabic the original language it was written we need to ask ourselves this question if they are that committed to memorizing the words of a false god then what does that say about you and me sitting in this room holding the words of the one true god we can barely manage to sit through 30 minutes a week of preaching and our seats better be comfy and the coffee better be good also the preacher better not use any big theological words memorize the bible actually study the bible what there's whole books of the bible that most christians don't even read that's why i'm doing the bible study on the book of daniel and revelation because most christians i talk to have not even read these books and they've only heard sermons on the first few chapters of both books let's stop for a second here and talk about these two books We call them end times teachings. Let's break down for just a minute what the Jewish, the Christian and the Muslims believe about end times. The Jew believes that a Messiah will come. He will be a political power, not necessarily God though. He will bring in peace into the world and we will all be able to live in harmony. The Christian believes that Messiah did come already. Jesus Christ was the Messiah. He was not a political leader even though the people wanted him to be one. He was and is God, and he came to bring peace, but a different peace. A peace not between man and man, but a peace between God and man. Another man is going to come. The Bible calls him the Antichrist. He will come and say peace and security. The Antichrist will have a prophet that will work with him and will carry out his orders. The Antichrist will set up a peace treaty for seven years. The world will face many horrible natural disasters and at the three and a half year point he will enter the temple and declare himself God and then will vow to kill all the Jews. The Jews will run to the mountain where God will seal 12,000 from each tribe and they will not be able to be hurt. The Jewish people will then see that Jesus was the Messiah and will turn their hearts to him. At the end of the seven years Jesus will return and will wage war on the Antichrist and kill him. Those who are still alive on the earth will be judged. Islam teaches that Jesus never died. He's in heaven now with Allah and is waiting for Allah to send him back to earth. He never died, he never rose again, and he never made payments for any sins. According to the Hadath, which is the second holy book of Muslims, a man will call, man that they call the Mahadi will come. He will come on a white horse and will have a black flag. He will come to set up the final caliphate. He will set up a peace treaty between the Jews, the Muslims, and the West. During this time, there will be massive amounts of natural disasters. But at the halfway point, he will set up his kingdom in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, where the Dome of the Rock is now. He will then rid the world of the Jews. And then, after he's finished that, Jesus will come back. He will return to the Mount of Olives. He will join the Mahadi to fight against any Jews who are still alive, and then will teach the Christians that they misunderstood him. He will worship the Mahadi and will break all the crosses. All the Jews will be dead and the Christians will then turn and worship the Mahadi. He will then end the tax since there will be no more non-Muslims and he will be the enforcer and the one who kills in the name of the Mahadi. He will then marry, have children and die and will be buried next to Muhammad. Then Muhammad will rule the world and there will be a judgment and those who do not follow the Mahadi will go to hell where there are seven levels of hell. The largest, by the way, is for women because most women go to hell and not many women are able to escape it. These three versions of end times have things strangely in common. There is really one central figure. The Christians see him as an antichrist and the Muslims will see him as the Mahadi. Both Islam and Christianity have a second figure, the prophet. Christianity calls him the false prophet, Islam says he is Jesus. Now does that blow your mind because as I was studying that, that blew my mind. We have to know what Muslims believe and we need to know how to defend what Christians believe. Do you know that Muslims are taught that when they talk to Christians about Jesus, they need to ask them this one question. Show me from the Bible where Jesus claims to be God. Not people writing about Jesus, but Jesus himself claiming to be God. They are taught Christians cannot answer this and this is proof that their faith is not real. Can you do it? Could you answer that question right now? Could the children going through your kids' programs and your youth programs at your church answer that question? Muslims are also taught that our Bible cannot be trusted because it's been translated too many times. If a Muslim said that to you, could you defend the Bible? Could you explain why the Bible can be trusted? If you're a pastor and you're listening to this, could your congregation explain how they know Jesus is God? Could they explain why the Bible can be trusted? We need to ask ourselves what we worship. Do we worship Jesus Christ or do we worship political correctness? Do we love, I mean truly love the Muslim people enough? Do we love them enough to tell them that Islam is wrong? Or do we love ourselves and our personal reputation more? We're fine to allow Muslims to continue to follow the path that we know will lead them to death as long as people think that we're nice and politically correct. Maybe you're saying, but we don't have to get into debates with Muslims about faith. We don't need to witness to them. We just have to be kind to them. You know that saying, preach, and if you must, use words. That's not actually in the Bible, just so you know. We will love them to Jesus, but we won't actually tell them about Jesus. That's not really how it works. The Bible never said preach, and if you must, use words. The Bible said go into all the world and preach the gospel. Preach. We need to be preaching. And yes, that implies using our words. We have this belief that if we criti- that it's people who criticize Islam that are causing people to be attracted to Islamic extremists. But what if I told you it's actually the exact opposite that's true? I talked to an ex Muslim who said that they were told, just watch, the Christians just give us free stuff. It's Allah making them pay us pay us the, the tax. And watch, after a terror attack, when we show that Allah is great, you know when they say Allah Akbar? The Christians will immediately say that they stand with us and that our religion is one of peace. Here's an example of this. A man who lives in Toronto has been on the news many times, both in Canada and the United States, explaining in detail how he worked for ISIS and killed many people. He returned to Canada two years ago. Global News talked about this in in their story. Uh, It's called As Government Prepares, Response to Calls Bring ISIS Members to Justice, Some Walk Free. In this report, the man said, no Kafar can touch me. Now, Kafar is an unbeliever. He was saying, no unbeliever can touch me. The fact that he's not been arrested or even bothered by anyone, even though he's been in Canada for two years, is a sign to him that he was actually correct in going to ISIS. It's a sign to him that Allah is with him. This is what our PC culture does. It actually validates the evil ideologies that we are too afraid to condemn. The PC culture has two goals, one, to shame us, to make us ashamed of our Western culture, history, and values, and secondly, to force us to accept or at least not criticize the culture, history, and values of those who hate us and consider themselves our enemy. I talked about the second one, but let's look at the first one. To be PC, we have to be ashamed of our culture, history, and values. This becomes obvious at the Christmas season. Every Christmas, there are stories of people and companies that don't want to say Merry Christmas or celebrate the history or culture of Canadians, really of Western civilization. I have a teacher friend that told me in their school there is no mention of Christmas. It's winter break, winter festival. The decorations are snowflakes and snowmen. There's no Christmas in our schools where children will be learning the customs and values of Canadian society. The worst part is my friend didn't even think that was a big deal. She was actually shocked that I was outraged by it. This became clear lately in the story of a Christmas tree at Victoria Hall in British Columbia. A man named Ben is a city councilor in Victoria City and he wants to get rid of Christmas trees, the lights, even poinsettias. He says that they are Christian and the Christian faith needs to not be paid for by taxpayers. This is our Canadian culture. We have decorated trees, lit Christmas candles and sung Christmas carols since before we were even a nation. Celebrating Christmas is a huge part of being Canadian. But this is what the PC police want. It want us to erase our history and our culture and make us feel ashamed of it. Interesting, the only Muslim on the council likes the lights in the trees and thinks they're actually really nice. So where did the Christmas tree come from? It goes all the way back to this man named Winifred Boniface. He was born in the year 675 and he was born into nobility. He wanted to serve God and as a young man became a monk. So as Protestants, sometimes we can look at this part of history and think it's not our history because it's Catholic. However, Protestant faith had not been established. Now, while there were clearly bishops and monks who were not following Jesus, and some were actually quite evil, there were those who did follow Jesus, and I believe Boniface was probably one of those. Boniface became a missionary and traveled all over the known world of the time, and he landed in Germany. This was during the Middle Ages, and the Germans were worshiping Thor. They believed the Great Oak was an example of Thor. Boniface, to show them that Thor was not real, chopped down the Great Oak, and then waited to show them that nothing would happen to him. Germans came to hear what Boniface had to say, and they were happy to hear about Jesus Christ, and they chose to abandon their faith in Thor and follow Jesus instead. As followers of Thor, they had decorated their homes with pieces of oak during the winter solace. Boniface told them to instead, look. instead of looking at the great oak, they could look at the evergreen. The evergreen is always green, even in the harshest winters, and it's like an arrow that points to God. The tree could remind them that Jesus points us to God, and that Jesus is life, and that he will be with us even in the harshest times. The Germans began to cut down fir trees and hang them from their ceilings. Boniface was killed by pagans while he was reading the Bible to a group of Christians on Pentecost Sunday. But the idea of bringing the evergreens into the house in the winter continued. The Germans decorated the trees with apples as a reminder of the Bible story of Adam and Eve, and also over time added nuts and sugar candies. Then Martin Luther added candles to his tree as a reminder that Jesus is the light of the world. This caught on soon, in, this caught on and soon all of the Lutheran people were adding candles to their trees. Then in 1848, Queen Victoria married Prince Albert. Prince Albert was from Germany and Queen Victoria asked Prince Albert to do something in the palace at Christmas that would make him feel at home. And he put up a Christmas tree. The London News took a picture of the couple in front of the tree and soon every home in England wanted a Christmas tree. As people moved from England to the Americas, the custom of the tree came with them. All across England and the Americas, people wanted trees. But there was a problem with fires. trees with candles in them in the homes was not safe. But then a man named Edward Johnson, who worked with Thomas Edison, invented these tiny little light bulbs for Christmas trees, and the tradition of untangling those Christmas lights began. By 1900, only one out of five families in America had Christmas trees, but today almost everyone does. It's a tradition that has passed down and grown over time. And it's a beautiful thing. And it's a Canadian thing. We can trace it back to our English roots and our German roots. It's not a friendship tree or a winter tree or a festive tree. It's a Christmas tree. The thing is, we tried for years to take away the Christian symbolism of the tree. But even the most anti-Christian city councilor can see it is Christian. And it does still point people to God. As I finish up, we're going to listen to the Christmas carol. This Christmas Eve marks 200 year anniversary of another German tradition that we have. Every Christmas Eve we must sing Silent Night, but it was first sung in Germany on Christmas Eve, 1818, exactly 200 years ago this Christmas Eve. As you listen, remember the story. Jesus, God the Son, came to earth as a baby, lived a perfect life, and died as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, your sins. He died and rose again and conquered death. And now if you confess your sins and turn from them, you will be saved. But before he could rise again, before he could die, before he could heal people, before he could walk on water, before he could preach the Sermon on the Mount, he had to be born. He had to be a baby. I'm Laura Lee Siemens, and I'll see you again in the new year.